This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. The Pritzker name is synonymous with preservation in military history. And we have been very fortunate at Preservation Maryland, which powers PreserveCast, to enjoy the Pritzker Military Foundation's support of our Historic Trades Workforce Development Program, which helps to train recent veterans. Knowing this, I've always wanted to have a conversation with Colonel Pritzker and learn more about her story. Today's podcast captures that conversation and explores the rest of the story of one of America's most unique philanthropists. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to a very special episode of PreserveCast. And today we're talking with Colonel Jennifer Pritzker, the President and Chief Executive Officer of Tawani Enterprises, President of the Tawani Foundation and Pritzker Military Foundation, and Founder and Chair of the Pritzker Military Museum and Library. Colonel Pritzker, it is an absolute pleasure to have you with us here today, and welcome to PreserveCast. We interview a lot of really successful and interesting people on PreserveCast and people who've led some pretty interesting lives, but um, you'd certainly rank high in just sort of the breadth and diversity of your experiences. Um, so I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, where you grew up and and I suppose in, in some sense what put you on the path to service, which is just runs sort of throughout all of your experiences. Well, let's see. I was born in Chicago in the middle of the last century, um, Grant Hospital, uh, which is now some kind of a condo development. <laughs> Lived there for three years, and then my family moved to Oberlin, Ohio, so my father could take a job running a factory in nearby Elyria. This is all near Cleveland. So my family lived there for about five years. Interestingly enough, we lived next to a Frank Lloyd Wright Weltzheimer House, if you want to look it up. And we actually knew the Weltzheimer family, the people who actually commissioned the house from Frank Lloyd Wright. Now it's uh, it's owned by Oberlin College. And you know, you, once in a while, if you make an appointment, you can go see it. Um, so we lived there for five years. And then in the fall of 1958, uh, we moved back to Chicago. And off and on, I've remained there pretty much ever since. Um, grew up in the city. Uh, did not move out to the Burbs until I was like in my early 50s. Lived in Evanston for about 10 years. Still own some property out there. That's really interesting. And, and do you think that any part of your upbringing inspired your passions in history, business, philanthropy, real estate, and, and such a long career with the military? Hard to say what unites all of the passions, but you know they all are extensions of something going on in my life. I mean, I get you know I've gotten interested in military history and veterans affairs. I've always had an interest in military affair, in military history, and military affairs. But you know, I got I've gotten interested in veterans affairs because I I am one, and uh, if I want to survive as a veteran, I need to help out other veterans when I can. So that's an example. I. I have to live somewhere. Wanting to live somewhere has extended into going into the real estate business and for a while specializing in uh, historic preservation restoration. Has history always been an interest to you? Yes, history has always interested me. Um, I think somebody gave me a book on the presidents of the United States. Of course, when they gave it to me, there were a lot fewer of them. (laughs) (laughs) This was back in the Eisenhower administration. So I grew up liking Ike. Yeah. And uh, I think by the time I was six, seven years old, I could name all the presidents 
in order. My children all have an interest in history. I dragged them to a lot of museums and shoved a lot of books in their faces when they were growing up. But for their generation, they're, they're very historically literate. And my oldest son, Andrew, has a degree in history from Tulane. And when he was a young child, he, could, he, he liked to specialize in royal houses of Europe. So he could name all the kings of England going back to Ethelred the Unready in the ninth century when he was like nine, ten years old. Has this understanding and appreciation for history and philanthropy uh, been a sort of tradition in the Pritzker family? Well, everybody in my family has always contributed to the community that they live in. I mean, even going back before the family had money. My great-great-grandmother, when she first emigrated to this country, you know, organized what she referred to as the Nickel Society. And she and some other ladies in the neighborhood would, you know, they'd all kick in a nickel and they'd help somebody else on the block. Well, you have to remember, they, none of them had much money. So for them to give up a nickel was significant. You know, back in those days, you could get a nice meal in a restaurant for like 50 cents. So it's been a long tradition. I mean, at this point, going back more than a century. My family's been living, my branch of the Pritzker family has been living in Chicago continuously since 1881. And my children represent, uh, I guess, the sixth or seventh generation um, to live here in Chicago. And I think, you know, it's, um, I think it's important for everybody to contribute to the community they live in at whatever level they can handle. You don't have to give, you know, several million dollars you know, to your university alma mater or something else. Everybody can do something. And if you don't have cash, you can volunteer time and effort. And sometimes it's very simple, like, you know, since we've we've been dealing with this COVID thing, sometimes you're doing a great service if you, you know, make a run to the grocery store for your next door neighbor or, uh, you know, watch their kids for an hour. All of that counts. It's just that I've, you know, I've reached a point in life where I can do it on a much larger scale. I can actually pay people to help me distribute funds. You know, if I do it right, I can integrate it with for-profit activities so that I can sustain the not-for-profit activities. Um, Quite simply, if you want to make a buck, you got to give a buck. If you want to give a buck, you got to make a buck. It's sort of an economic, ecological cycle, and it's all part of it. So let me me ask you here. So obviously, I mean... We're referring to you, for those who aren't familiar, as, as Colonel Pritzker, you spent a considerable amount of time in the uniform of the nation, and you mentioned it, you know, sort of how, as a veteran, that's something that, that interests you. You know, you've, be, you've be obviously become very interested and have a whole foundation dedicated to this, but what, what needs are out there? What, what is the, what's the need of the veteran community that I suppose um, most interests and concerns and, and gets you you know, sort of fired up and, and excited about supporting them? And, and what are you hoping to accomplish within that, that veteran community when it comes to philanthropy? Well, first of all, every veteran always has an issue with transition. Well, first, when they entered the military, they went through a rather intense transformation from civilian to soldier, sailor, airman, marine, coast guardsman. Then when they complete their tour of duty, now they've got to integrate back into the civilian society that they came from. For some, it's easier than most, but everybody goes through a significant transition. And and there's some parts of you that never fully transition. Just like even when you go into the military, there's some part of your civilian identity that still remains. 
And when you come back to the civilian world, there's some part of the military that still remains. And how much remains or, you know, the intensity of your transformation depends on what your experience in the military was. Clearly, people, you know, who've had extended time in combat, lots of times overseas or been POWs, they're going to have a more, they're more likely to have a more challenging transition, you know, than somebody that uh, worked in a stateside motor pool. But you'd be surprised what, what can happen even in the so-called, you know, rear echelon stateside posts. I mean, all kinds of things happen in the military that really don't happen much on the outside. I also think that it's important that the civilian community and the military community maintain knowledge and understanding of each other. Because in, in the United States, we want our military to be controlled by the, mili- by the civilians. Well, how can that happen? if the civilians don't understand or have no knowledge, appreciation, or experience with the military. And one of the big changes that's occurred in my lifetime is when I was a child, most of the men of my father's generation had some kind of military service, either in World War II or Korea or something else. Many of the men in my grandfather's generation had experience in World War I. So the, the percentage of veterans in the population was much higher. It was a much more common experience. Now, you know, the number of people on active duty is less than 1% of our population. So therefore, there's a steady decline in percentage of veterans as part of the population. You know, after about my age, after, after you know, folks of the Vietnam era, the youngest of whom are now in their late 50s, early 60s, there's going to be a significant drop-off, you know, as they start to age, you know, old soldiers fading away. So maintaining you know, this understanding, both the military needs to have positive contact with the civilian community, and the civilian community needs to have po- co- positive contact with the military. So in addition to the you know, foundations that I've created, I've also worked with several others, you know, like the USO, Ben's Business Executives for National Security, numerous museums, the Naval Institute. I could go on. There are number of other organizations that I've that I've worked with and I think they all serve a useful purpose because one of the one of the definitions of a sovereign nation is the ability to defend itself and even if we're partners in a coalition or an alliance we still have to bring our own capability to the table well to do that how can civilians be expected to influence the congressmen and senators that vote the appropriations vote on the policies let the president know what 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 they want for a, for a national policy if they don't have some personal knowledge experience whatever this country spends over 700 billion dollars a year on defense more than the rest of the world put together so it's incumbent on all citizens you know if they're not going to serve and even if they do serve they have to maintain some level of knowledge and interest if they want to have a democracy that truly represents them so you also you also have I mean and I guess kind of part and parcel with that and it's, it's so interesting to hear you talk about the need for the civilians to understand the military and the military to understand civilians. Um, I suppose a big component of your interest in philanthropy and and your work your life's work has been the, this creation of the the Pritzker Military Museum. Um, for people who aren't familiar with it, what what stories does it tell? And and I suppose is this part of that concept of getting civilians to understand and appreciate and respect what the military has done, what it's doing. Is that 
part of the broader theme here? Well, essentially, it's developed from me being a bibliophile pack rat. <laughs> well, I, I'm descended from bibliophile pack rats. You know, my great grandfather, you know, taught himself English, you know, selling newspapers on the streets of Chicago when he was like 10 years old. And he eventually learned English well enough to qualify as a registered pharmacist and later as, as an attorney. And he was extremely well read, even though he didn't really have a conventional university education. You know, he got his his uh, education sort of in bits and pieces and went to the DePaul University of DePaul Knight Law School to qualify as an attorney, passed the bar exam. So, you know, I developed this huge collect. I developed a large collection of books. My parents developed a large collection of books, some of them handed down from my grandfather and great grandfather. And I reached a point where if I were going to maintain the collection, they had to be properly organized. And that meant hiring a professional librarian to properly catalog them so that I could be part of the interlibrary loan network so that the collection could be made available to other people. It was a way of literally having my cake and eating it too. Um, I, could, I could maintain control and possession of all of these books, but by organizing it into a proper not-for-profit corporation, hiring professional staff, um, I could make this asset available to other people and get a little bit of a tax break doing it. And then in order to you know, pay the staff people and do the other things required to main the museum, we've, we've create, we do fundraising and we do uh, revenue producing activities just like any other foundation. Um, you know, we've, we're now up to something over 100,000 line items, you know, both books, documents, artifacts. We have a collection of over 100 firearms, most of which are, are functioning. Now, they're historic ones. I mean, you know, we're ready to, you know, outfit a, a World War I doughboy or, you know, or a World War II GI or we can handle the Spanish-American War on a very limited basis. But we tell all kinds of stories. We've, we've got a really nice collection on dealing with the Medal of Honor. We actually have an actual Medal of Honor donated by a recipient of one, uh, Herschel, known as Woody Williams, Marine Corps uh, veteran for actions on Iwo Jima, 1945. He's still alive. And he was kind enough to donate it to the museum. And the only thing he asked for in return was for, for years after he got out of the Marine Corps, he worked for the Veterans Administration. And somehow he got a hold of this massive tapestry that was put together by a nearly blind veteran. And the, the tapestry depicts the Medal of Honor, his Medal of Honor. And he wanted it to go to a museum as a package. He said, if you want the medal, you got to take the tapestry. We said, okay. And that's exactly what we've done. And we have the original citation signed by Harry Truman, conscious of saving paper. So they print the citation on both sides of the paper. So we had to make a copy of one side so that you know we could display both of them. And we've got a you know we got a picture of him you know as he was as a young Marine in World War II. And uh, we also have conducted a number of oral history interviews of other recipients. And sad to say that many of the recipients that we've interviewed are dead now because the youngest of them you know from the Vietnam era are all my age or older. And there've only been I don't know maybe I think there're only about ten or twelve. I'm not sure of the precise number, but it's a, it's, it's, it's a two-digit number, low two-digit number of veterans from the last 20-plus years since 9-11. That gives you some idea of how rarely it is awarded. You know, building up this, this stockpile of a 
original source material, I think will be very helpful to scholars both now and in the future. And we have a we have an interactive display at the museum where you can punch a button and you can look up all Medal of Honor recipients going all the way back to the Civil War, um, to the present conflict, to some of the rare non-combatant ones, such as the one awarded to Charles Lindbergh for flying across the Atlantic, and one for uh, Richard Byrd for circuit you know, for flying over the North Pole and the South Pole. There's some other rare non-combatant ones, but um, many of the recipients died in the performance that earned them the medal. Many of them, even though they earned the medal, they were left permanently wounded. And there's some extraordinary stories, and they're all, they all have this sort of conflicting streak in them of modesty, and they're kind of overwhelmed by the medal, but they all you know, have a certain really deep pride. And once they believe in something, you have to kill them to stop them. But they do represent the best and sometimes not some of the best in all of us. But it's an in, but it's I think it's a worth worthwhile story to tell. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, it's I think I think you're completely right. And if you don't if you've not had the chance to meet a Medal of Honor recipient and you do get the chance, it's it's it does sort of change your 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 life and your your perspective on things. I had the opportunity to work with Paul Buca, um, who um received the Medal of Honor in, in Vietnam. Uh, on a project we were doing in Gettysburg um, at the time, and um, it, you're you're right, it does. It's just, uh, and you're and you're right too about Paul fits that um, that paradigm that you said if uh, if he gets it in his craw, it's it's not going anywhere. Um, and uh, uh, but but there is a sort of a humble um, modesty to all of it as well that is 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 sort of is a, a beautiful component of it. Well, some of it is. Um you know, a form of survivor's guilt. You know, if they're still alive, they're wondering, why me? You know, what about some of my other buddies? You know, they were standing right next to me and they got blown away and I didn't. You know, and I saw plenty of other people do stuff as heroic as I did. And, you know, they were lucky if they went home with a good conduct medal, you know, or a campaign medal or a Purple Heart. There's some politics involved with, you know, the, with the awarding of these medals. I mean, the military is not going to give you an award just because they like you. There's a purpose to these awards. They're not going to do it unless it serves their purpose. But that still doesn't diminish, you know, from, you know, what these people have done. It clouds it up a bit. Sometimes the people who should get it don't get it. And there's some awards that people get that they shouldn't have gotten. But still, you know, there's there's still a, a kind of a pure core in there. It isn't diminished by all the other nonsense. So let me ask you, um, maybe pivoting here for a second. Obviously, you have the museum. You have the, the, the support of veterans issues. Um, but there's also been, you know, you've done a generous amount of work in the, in the historic preservation field. What interests you most about preservation and, and maybe even a follow-up on that is, are there things about preservation that concern you right now? Where, where, where is Jennifer Pritzker on historic preservation in, in 2021? Well, we can't preserve everything. We just can't. And nor can we live the way we did 100 years ago. I own a couple of historic houses in, in Evanston. You know, they were built 1880s and first, first decade of the 20th century. You know, and they had coal-burning furnaces in them. And one of them, you know, there was, you know the, the garage was a coach house with horses and a carriage in it. We can't really live with that anymore. But there are elements of that house that still have relevance to the 21st century. So preservation is about maintaining sufficient continuity with the past, that we have some understanding of the past, 
So that helps us understand how we got to the present so that we can make a reasonable projection as to what the future may bring. So this is why preservation is important, but it has to be done on a very selective basis because we can't save everything and it's very expensive to do. If you buy a house you know, that was born the same year I was hatched, you're probably gonna pay, even if the, even if the previous owners of the house were good stewards, to do a full-blown restoration, you're gonna end up paying 50%, 100%, 200% of the acquisition cost to do a full-blown restoration. Because think about it, you know, standard issue depreciation on a building is about 30 years. So if I'm 70, that means that means the, the house has gone through two to three cycles of depreciation. Well, that means you gotta rebuild the house. You know, it all adds up. You know, you gotta replace the roof every, I don't know, 50 years. Maybe you have to shore up the foundations. Maybe you've gotta, you know, re rewire the electrical system. Because um, you get into some of these really older houses, ones that were built in the early 20th century, they've got cloth insulation on the wiring. In a wood house, you can't have that. So, you know, the cost of, you know, digging through the house, doing what, what amounts to exploratory surgery, you know, to find where all this wiring is, take out the old wiring, replace it with new wiring, or put in a computer server if you want to go wireless, that costs money. And by the time you get through adding up all of these things that have accrued over the lifetime of the building, the older buildings, the one that are as old as me or older, you're rebuilding the building from the inside out almost completely. And if you want to restore this building to have a, a purpose other than what it was originally built for, you know, that's another added cost. So even something as simple as taking a big old house, you know, built in the early 20th century or late 19th and converting it to a bed and breakfast, that adds another dimension to the cost. If, if it's the right house, if it can be done, if the restoration can be done properly, it's maintaining sort of our collective identity. And if we do it right, we can make the house relevant for the 21st century. The, the building that my office is in, the Monroe building, was built in 1912. Now, we did a total restoration of it. We went down to 2% occupancy. You know, we commissioned a you know, place to make exact duplicates of the original tiles, things like that. Now, again, we don't have the same precise building that was there when Woodrow Wilson ran for president, you know, against Teddy Roosevelt and William Howard Taft and Eugene Debs. But we have the exterior appearance. We have much of the interior restored. We've got computers, you know, we've got um, cell phones, you know, we have lights that turn on automatically when you walk into the room. It's a very different building, but the exterior, the shell remains. And if you look at the outside of the building, you know, you can, I can imagine somebody like my, my great grandfather, oh, like in, you know, maybe is, well, let's see, in 1912, he would have been like 41 years old. You know, I can imagine, you know, him taking his oldest son on, on a business appointment with him. His oldest son, Harry, I don't know, I guess would have been about 20 in 1912. My grandfather would have been 16. And trying, you know, it's, it's fascinating to imagine, you know, people, you know, my, my grandparents, when they were young people, and going to the same building that I'm in today. I don't know if they ever set foot in it, but it wouldn't surprise me if between my grandfather and his three sons, and for sure my father and his two brothers, for a building that's been in Chicago for over 100 years, I got to believe at some point they were inside it for some reason, but I don't know what or when. Yeah, I, I think it's so interesting, too, that throughout all of this, um, you know, it's so clear that there's 
there's a passion on your part for family history and understanding where your family was and where you fall within that. And I, I just think that that's, um, you know, it's a, it's a, a, a wonderful attribute and, and, a, and, a, and a cool way of looking at things. I think it's tough for some of us who perhaps, you know, we, we emigrated a little later, um, to, to know that always, or to, to know when, when and where our ancestors were, but it's, it's interesting, um, when there's such that, that long lineage there in terms of the preservation work that through your philanthropic ways that you've been able to support anything that people should know about that, something that you're proud of that you've been able to, to support out there with preservation. Well, I think we've, I think we've done a, a good job with the Emil Bach house. That was a house built by Frank Lloyd Wright in 1915. And it's called the Emil Bach house because that's the guy who commissioned it. It's available for rental. You know, you can, you can have a party out there. You can, uh, you can even sleep in it. And we have a you know vacation home that for a while we operated as a bed and breakfast. It's literally next door to it. So you can go for the whole package, you know, and you can, you know, for say a wedding, you know, the bride and groom can sleep in the Frank Lloyd Wright house and, uh, you know, mom and dad of the bride and groom, they can sleep next door and, you know, one or two, you know, friends, relations, et cetera. And it's got a yard and it's got a, uh, you know, we added like a Zabo tea house uh, kind of thing on the property. So it's very conducive, you know, for uh, eh, medium, small events. And when we defeat Iris the virus, Mona Corona, and go back to a time when we don't have to wear masks to see each other and we don't have the president or the governor telling us for good reason that there can't be more than a couple dozen of us and the same place at the same time, you know, we'll be able to go back for that. And I'm hoping that, that that day will occur soon. And again, the study of history is useful because we can compare the situation that we're living with now to previous plagues, you know, like the great influenza epidemic of 1918, you know, bubonic plague, black plague of, you know, the late Middle Ages in the 14th century, or the polio epidemic that was around when I was a young child in the 50s. We've been through situations like this before. Now, they, there are certain similarities to them and differences. And again, by the study of history, we can look at patterns. And through restoration, we can get even a closer look at what happened before so that we can understand the present better. And again, as I said earlier, make projections into the future. There are lessons to be learned you know, from what folks in the 14th century lived through. There are lessons to be learned. I mean, I, I've been reading this book on, on the influenza epidemic of 1918, and it amazes me that my grandparents survived because they were young then. You know, in 1918, they ranged in age from about 12 to 28, and they were kind of prime targets for it, but they all survived. And one of my grandfathers was in the army in World War One, you know, and sailed on a troop ship to France as a private. You know, those, those troop ships were kind of prime and the training camps were prime breeding ground for the disease. So I'm amazed that he survived it. He lived to be 78. You know, my other grandfather, you know, spent the war stateside uh, in the Navy. But again, he was, you know, he spent some time out at Great Lakes. Great opportunity to catch a disease, but he survived. He lived to be 90. All, all four of my grandparents made it past the age of 70, which for their generation was uh, beyond normal life expectancy. So... This all plays a part of it. Everyone has a past. Everyone comes from something. And I know there's a lot of interest in genealogy. You know, people sending in you know, samples of DNA to figure out which ethnic group they, they come from. Or looking up the census you know, from 100, 150 years ago. And they're finding out stuff. You, know, you don't have to be a wealthy family to have significant interest 
And it's everybody's past is important. This is some, and see, it's, it's, it's a common denominator for all of us. We all want to know where we came from. You know, the, you know, the cla- what's now become a classic, you know, the, the book and later the TV series Roots, you know, by Alex Haley. In some cases, he had to use a little bit of literary license because there was, there was no record that he can consult. But when he did take the literary license, at least he based it on the facts that he did know. You know, he did not have Kunta Kinte coming from the moon. You know, he was able to narrow down at least what part of Africa and basically what village. Now, there were pieces in there that, I don't know, he, he himself might have told you, he might not have gotten the precise shipwright or, you know, when he was sold as a slave. Some of the details he may have missed, but he was able to research enough of it that it made a valid story. And I think that it provided a great service, you know, for all the black people in this country, because it gave them a sense that they come from something. You know, they have a past, they have an ethnic identity that's as valid as anybody else's. And he provided some of the tools to be able to find it. And we all have that. You know, we can all invest in the time and the effort to find out what we can. And the information is there if you really want to look for it. Yeah, I think that that's a, a you know, it's it's interesting. You've covered not only the, the past and that we all have that past, which is so true. And Alex Haley, a, a Marylander, so... Uh, Glad we were able to get a plug in for Roots and and uh, and, and Alex. Um, but also, um, you you mentioned sort of the future and the the value of understanding the past and the future. I guess it's a good place to to pivot to some of our last few questions here while we have you, which is, um, what does the future hold um, for your foundations? Um, and if people want to learn more about you or hear from you or um, just learn about the foundations, where should they find all that? Well, for one thing, there's a website for the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, www.pritzkermilitary.org. Pritzker being spelled P-R-I-T-Z-K-E-R. You'll go to the website and you'll find out stuff. Uh, You can go to the Tawani Enterprises website, T-A-W-A-N-I enterprises.com preceded by the WW. Tawani being derived from the names of my children, Tal, Andrew, William, in the order that they were birthed. Um, Tal being my daughter, she's the oldest. Andrew being my oldest son and William being my youngest son. So I took the first and second letters of their names you know, and put them in order. And some people think I import chopsticks from what used to be called Formosa, now Taiwan. There's a guest house somewhere in South Africa that has that name. I don't know, maybe it means something in one of the African languages. I don't know, but if you Google it, you'll find some other oddball, well, I won't say oddball, but they non-English, non-US origins to them, which I was totally unaware of when I created the name, but but as to the future, right now the PMML is a private foundation. We are in the process of converting it to a public foundation. And what that means is right now I'm the sole member of the foundation, but I'm hoping within the next, I don't know, three to five years, it will convert to a public foundation in which the board, the staff, and input from the members is going to be the governing body of it. For me, it's... um, sort of like having another child. You know, my child, the, the PMML was born uh, in 2003, um, 2003, and now it's gonna be 18 this year. You know, we're gonna send it off to college, <laughs> or it's gonna go into the military or go get a job, but it's gonna do something, you know, to progress 
to get itself progressively out of the house. You know, I've watched my child grow from, just like my real flesh and blood children, watched them grow from total dependency on mom and dad to, you know, by the time they're five, six years old, you know, they can dress themselves, they can feed themselves, they can find their way to the bathroom by themselves, they can read, and then as they, it's, it's and then as they get older, they take on more and more autonomy, independence, and capability. And frankly, my children are at the point where, frankly, they can, they're ready to take care of me. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes they do, because my children are grown now. They range in ages from 26 to 38. So the PMML is going to grow up and it's going to leave home, leave me. And yes, I'm going to, I'm going to leave it with a su substantial endowment. You know, I've donated several artifacts as have many other people but it's going to move on beyond me you know what whatever control i've got over it now or had in the past it's fading away and this is just a natural evolution none of us live forever none of us are immortal but sometimes we can create things that live on beyond us you know a couple days ago was mozart's uh, birthday well let's see he was born let me think born in 1756 so i guess he was 265 yesterday or a couple days ago. His music is probably more popular now than it was in his lifetime because we have the technology to distribute it. I mean, on this, on this computer, hypothetically, 100 million people, you know, could listen to the 41st Jupiter Symphony, a rendition of uh, Die Zauberflöte, you know, the magic flute, one of, his, one of his operas. That possibility didn't exist in his lifetime. If you wanted to hear the 41st Symphony, you had to go to the orchestra hall or go to the palace of, you know, count somebody and hear it live. And there, and there were no other options. See, now we have the, the, the capability of perpetuating things from the past that we didn't have in the past. And that's, that's kind of exciting. And again, I really hope that what I've created in my lifetime will last beyond it. Some of these things my children may pick up on, maybe not. They have their own life to live. They've now evolved to where you know, they make their own choices in life. I'll help them, but it's their life, their choice, their responsibility. That's what's going to happen to anything that I've created in my lifetime. Is I want it to survive beyond my lifetime because if for no other reason, you know, I don't want the staff at the PMML or the staff at Tawani Enterprises or any, anything else. I don't want to have them suddenly be out of out of a job, you know, a week after I, I croak, you know, or if they do leave that, it's done in an orderly fashion. If they leave one place, they know where they're going to the next place. And there's an orderly passage from one entity to another, from one generation to another. Yad leyad, that's the Hebrew expression from generation to generation. Roughly translated, that's hand to hand. And so, you know, it's my turn to be in the driver's seat, but uh, I'm not going to be here forever. At some point, somebody else is going to sit in this seat and take over. And hopefully, as my father and mother, uh, my mother's still alive, my father isn't. But just as they left things net better for me than what they found and their parents left a better life for them than what they found hopefully i've done the same thing for my children grandchildren and not just them but you know the people that i work with i mean i'm, I'm looking at you and i'm probably old enough to be your parent um you look to be the age of somewhere around the age of my daughter probably right in that range yeah yeah somewhere in that general range i mean you know if you'd move fast you might have dated her before she got married <laughs> 
Um, but um, yeah, you know, I, I, want, I want the folks in your generation, you know, to have something better than what I had. I don't know if the people in my generation will be able to pro provide it. We're being challenged right now, but we're all trying. I mean, even the Donald has made an effort to provide a better life for his children. He may not agree with how he's done it. He may have, you know, done a few things that he shouldn't have, but the intent was there. And, it, and it's, it's something natural to all life. You know, all life wants to perpetuate itself through future generations. And I don't know about an afterlife. I don't, for sure, there's no immortality. But what we create in our lifetimes, pieces of it do pass on to the next generation. If you have children, a piece of you has gone on to another human being. And even if you don't have children, there are things that you've done that will live on past your lifetime. So I have the means to maybe do it on a somewhat larger scale, but it's something that everybody has a capacity to do. I don't know. I, I mean, I... Every once in a while, I like to take a walk through cemeteries. And when I look at the gravestones and I think about what kind of life did these people have? Why did they end up in this particular cemetery? That tells you a lot about the, the local history. For example, you know, on Foster Avenue, there's this uh, Bohemian Cemetery. You know, a lot of people have, you know, checked descent or buried there. You know, one day I took a, you know, stroll through it and found that apparently there were a lot of people of, you know, ethnic Czechs that fought in the U.S. Civil War. Now, I, I never knew that until I walked through the cemetery. All kinds of things that you can find out. Well, I think this idea of, of leaving something better than you found it, it's funny, you mentioned a couple different things here, but you mentioned Ike at the beginning, and, and Eisenhower only ever owned one home, and it was in Gettysburg. And he said that you know his whole goal with that place was to leave it better than he found it. Um, and... You know, I think that that is that's an interesting concept just for preservation in general and, and in preserving place and leaving something to that next generation. And I think you um, you you put that together very nicely. And and I should also mention just because you mentioned cemeteries, but that's uh, my wife and I walked around a cemetery and that's where we found our our daughter's name. So how about that? We we liked old names and and we found uh, our daughter's name that way. So yes, go out, listen to Colonel Pritzker and myself. Go out and. Uh, visit cemeteries. The, you, you'll never know what you'll find, whether it be uh, Czech uh, uh, Civil War soldiers or, or perhaps your future daughter's name. You might find it in a cemetery. <laughs> so before we go, this has just been very fascinating. It's so interesting to talk to someone um, like yourself who, who've had such interesting experiences. Um, but we ask everyone this, and I'm curious to hear your answer. Your favorite historic place or site? Ooh, tough one. I don't know if I have a favorite, but you no, know, there are a few. I mean, I like the Monroe Building where my office is. I don't know. I once, the house that my father had built in Oberlin back in the 1950s, you know, that's now something of a historic house because it's now, you know, he commissioned it in like 1953. So that means it's nearly 70 years old. But at the time it was, you know, hot stuff contemporary. It wasn't a big house, you know, because, uh, you know, it was your basic, you know, middle, upper middle class home of, you know, of a working professional. Nice, but, you know, nothing elaborate. And it's still there. I don't know the people who live there now. Once I took, I once took my kids there with my, with my mother. I've got some pictures of us standing in front of it. I hope the current occupants, you know, didn't think we were trespassing. We were very careful to keep distance from the house. We didn't go any farther than like the mailbox. So, you know, that's kind of interesting. Um, 
Oh, the city of Chicago fascinates me. I haven't done much of it lately, but I've ridden my bicycle all over the city of Chicago. And it's fascinating for me to go through different neighborhoods and see remnants that go back to the 19th century and see places. There are places in Chicago that have had three or four different buildings on the same plot of land in my lifetime, like where the Park Hyatt is. You know, that's the second rendition you have a Park Hyatt hotel, and before that, there was other stuff there. And it, it just fascinates me, you know, when I go through the city to look at places that existed in my childhood that aren't there anymore. You know, frankly, I was a little sad that, you know, Comiskey Park is no more. Guaranteed rate field? What kind of name is that for a baseball stadium? <laughs> I mean, I just don't get it. But, you know, if they if they want to pay for it, you know, I guess they can call it Blue Moon if they want to. Um, but again, it's it's just so many places in the city of Chicago that exist and no longer exist. Like where the Museum of Contemporary Art is um, on Chicago Avenue. That used to be a National Guard armory. And that's where I entered the National Guard. Now, the place where I entered the Army, where I joined the regular Army as an enlisted soldier in 1974, that no longer exists. It's someplace on... On LaSalle, and what I think it was on someplace on West Van Buren. I mean, I have trouble. I'd have to look through my old records to see what the precise address was. I remember generally where it was, but there's no trace of it now. Or this morning, I was out in Glenview, and I was literally across the street from where you know the main control tower was. Now, one of my uncles, Jay Pritzker, for whom Millennium Park is named in Chicago, when he was in his early 20s. When he was like 21 years old, he was a flight instructor there. The Navy gave him a direct commission because he was a college graduate and had a private pilot's license. But he was partially colorblind, so he memorized the charts so they would take him into the Navy. And so he would go up, I guess, in these biplanes and teach people to fly without killing themselves eventually so they could kill somebody else. But again, you know, I look at what it is now. You know, it's a shopping mall. You know, I sat and waited for an Uber at a Starbucks. But... Who knows, maybe Ensign Pritzker in 1942, you know, crossed that street to go into the main tower to go report for his initial assignment. Who knows? Yeah. So it's fascinating to look at these things. It is, and I think it, it comes back to that that strong sense of family history and strong sense of place um, mm -hmm. and sort of the passage of time and uh, the importance of knowing where you stand in time and and you know, where, where you'll be remembered. So mm -hmm. it's been uh, an absolute pleasure to be able to spend some time with you and to bring uh, you to our listeners. Um, thank you so much for being with us and for all the good work that you do, um, not only in veterans issues, in military issues, but also in preservation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to preservecast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.